0: Pleasure to meet you, young fella. You've come at a good time. Say, how would you like to pick the next governor of Connecticut? Excuse me? We're just about to select a new governor of Connecticut. In the old days, politicians used to come to power through a process of election rather than selection. Nowadays, of course, we know nobody's any better at the job than anybody else. Folks never really believed it made any difference anyway. All elections did was make sure nobody got too big for their britches. Become a tyrant, something like that. Our process does that every bit as well, and it saves a whole lot of time and money. (laughs) Makes sense.
1: Well, welcome back, everybody, to Take Me to Your Reader, discussing adapted science fiction at its best and worst. I'm Seth. I'm James. And I'm Colin. And we are joined by our good buddy, Michael Simshouser. Hey, Michael. Hey. It's nice to have you. Um, You you are one of our longest-term friends of the show, so that's awesome.
0: Yeah. No, I've been um, there from, I think, episode one.
1: Really? (laughs) So you found the show when it was in its infancy?
0: Um, yeah, because you and I used to talk on the sci-fi movie podcast, and it was um, – Oh, that's you, right. Yeah. Said, I'm looking for an audience, and I went, hey, I'm an audience. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I hope you don't regret it too much. Um, <laughs> but you obviously don't, because you're also one of our you, – you were our first patron. So that was uh, – thank you for that
0: as well. Yeah, Thank you. <laughs> Well, that's okay. Um, I remember us having a talk about it in the early days and um, said I would. So when then you made, my, right. made me put my money where my mouth is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's see. We don't have to go through like a, a history of Michael on account of we've done that on The Hugo Show. And if people want Ooh. to know more about that, they can listen to our episode on The Man in the High Castle. Yep. But uh, the story we're talking about this time is Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut because Colin loved – uh, Slaughterhouse-Five so much we had to do some more Vonnegut. Um, <laughs> um, it's a 1961 story. It was actually published in the Magazine of Science Fiction and
2: Fantasy, I think. So, so Colin had to Vonnegut some more Vonnegut? Yes. He wants to get some more Vonnegut.
3: There
2: <laughs> yes, might have been some vonnegut
3: into a toilet several times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, by the way. And it was republished in Vonnegut's collection, Welcome to the Monkey House. And it has been adapted actually a lot. Um, if you go to YouTube and search "Harrison Bergeron film," you will find a lot of student films of varying quality. I can assure you. Oh
2: yeah, yeah. There <laughs> cool. was there was quite a few on that feed. I can, on the recommended list or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but
1: there was a 1995 Showtime movie, uh, which you know for TV basically, starring Sean Astin and Christopher Plummer and then there is a 2009 adaptation called 2081 and those are the two that we're going to be talking about this time i know there are other adaptations michael have you seen any of the others or found them anywhere
0: um i know that mind um did an adaptation an audio adaptation um but yeah like you like you guys i've um i've seen the varying student films um yeah um <laughs> of varying qualities um But that could also extend to the Showtime one as well, Colin. So I, yeah, I do apologize for that in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Well, uh,
1: so we usually start off with history with the material. So Michael, why don't you start us off with that? Because you, well, I, I guess I didn't mention that you're using your patron prerogative to tell us to do something, and you gave us several options, and this happened to be the shortest one.
0: Um, no, well, my history with Harrison Bergeron is um, through the movie. I remember watching it. Um, it was that long ago. It was on VHS, so because um, mm. <laughs> um, obviously we don't get Showtime in Australia, but um, yeah, so I was just watching uh, that, and then. Stumbling on to, I got, actually got an anthology um, edited by Kingsley Amos, The Golden Age of Science Fiction, um, simply because it had the story in it and um, read through the story and um, yeah, and then tracked down the actual short story itself. So that's that's my history with um, Harrison Bergeron. Nice. cool.
1: James, any previous history with the material?
0: None whatsoever.
3: Uh, what about you, Colin? I had never read any Vonnegut until we started with Slaughterhouse-Five last month. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, and the rest is history.
3: Yes. So
1: for me, uh, this was a new, a new story for me as well. I hadn't seen any of the movies, hadn't heard of the story. And the funny thing was, I was mentioning to Elaine that we were doing Slaughterhouse-Five by Vonnegut. And she said, Vonnegut, is he the guy who wrote that, that weird story? And she described it. And so I literally typed <laughs> into my phone, Vonnegut story XYZ that she said, and it came up with Harrison Bergeron. I went, oh. That's what we're doing next month. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she read that one in high school. Uh, you know, she read Harrison Bergeron in high school. And it is pretty frequently taught. And actually, there is a website for the the 2081 movie uh, that's meant for teachers. So teachers can go there and actually fill out a form and get teaching materials sent to them because it's pretty commonly taught. Oh,
0: no oh, that's kidding. cool. In the U.S., though, I don't think it's taught um, in Australia. Hmm. Um, we, um, yeah, uh, that's one where one area we lagged behind the U.S. is um, a distinct lack of science fiction being taught in high school. Not that I, you know, was ever angry or upset or um, <laughs> felt like I was missing out. Right. Even um, Not even on the beach? <laughs> no, no, um, not that I was aware of. Um, I think when I was at school, we did The Outsiders, um uh, uh, when I was at boarding school and then when I changed to a normal high school, um, we did The Outsiders again, which was handy because I already had the notes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. yeah. Um, so, yeah, we didn't really sort of um, do anything science fictiony, unfortunately, in, um, in the high school uh, curriculum. Hmm. We didn't do a
1: ton at my high school. And Colin and I have talked for years about, you know, I'll mention a story I read in high school or a, a book I read in high school. And he's like, nope didn't do that one um because he was in like what honors classes Colin?
3: in my senior year i took an honors class so i actually took university class my seniors year mm. um but all the stuff before then like in in uh, elementary school and middle school every time i could opt to read out like uh, i read a connecticut yankee and king arthur's court instead mm. of uh huck finn and it was all twain oh. and the teachers were cool with that
1: oh okay interesting Ooh. Oh, interesting. So we did stuff like 1984 and Animal Farm. And I know we read some Bradbury as well. But
2: We did Blade Runner, so huh? Oh, really? Yeah, we had Blade Runner, 1984,
0: Animal Farm, Fahrenheit 451. Hmm. We did do Animal Farm, um, but I can top James with Blade Runner. Um, My English teacher, we studied um, James Bond. We got to watch Goldfinger. What? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you win.
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. We could do a lot of adapted... James Bond movies.
1: True. 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 Yeah. I guess we could go around and say, you know, what each of us thought of the stories. And you've probably gotten the tenor of uh, Colin's thought about the story already. And I do (laughs) definitely want to do as deep a dive as we can into, Colin, what you react to so violently. (laughs)
2: Definitely. I definitely want to know that.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I I don't think anyone else wants to know that. Why don't... (laughs) Talk, talk to Michael. He likes the story. <laughs> It'll be a much nicer podcast No, no, no.
2: Actually, I kind of want you to go first, but then we can crush you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Thank you, Conan. My, my opinion's strong. So my we logic can reasonable. slaughter your
2: house
1: five times. No, I mean, so, Colin, it's safe to say you did not enjoy the story.
3: No, I did not. No. I didn't find Ooh. it thought-provoking, entertaining,
0: Ooh, okay. uh,
2: thoughtful, self-consistent, <laughs> logical... <laughs> Uh, anything. I don't think it was long enough to be any of those things you're talking about. How could you find any of those wrong with it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
1: is there something that sticks out about it that, that is the reason that you don't like it?
2: It, uh, it's
3: not sensical.
1: You mean like it's not self-consistent. The, the story that it tells does not make sense.
3: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're going to interrupt people's thought processes with extremely loud noises, what happens is is you, you deafen them, which means they don't hear the noises anymore. Right. And if you weigh down people with very, very strong weights, mm-hmm. they become stronger. That's because that's what the human body does. It adapts. Right. So, and the whole idea of trying to make people truly equal, if you stop and think about it, would mean that uh, because there are people that are blind right. or deaf or or to be not so extreme, colorblind or uh, you know, not being able to taste certain things, it, it would be impossible to create the world that they said they wanted to create. And they didn't actually create it anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this the other day, where and we didn't talk about what the story is about. I presume anybody who's listening to this will have gone and read the story. And if you haven't, <laughs> it'll take you, what was it, three ounces of beer? Three ounces. Jim? Yep. Three ounces. Yeah. Yep. Like, like like a couple of sips of beer. It literally <laughs> would take five minutes to read the story. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do that. But yeah, we were talking about the fact that basically you can't really make people Equal the way the story describes, right? If you put masks on people who are beautiful, then everybody knows who the beautiful people are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you put weights on people who are strong, everybody knows who the strong people are. And so you may be able to equalize them in in some sense, but that's the thing about to me. That's the clue that the story isn't really about that. Mm-hmm. And it, to me, it's more of a thought experiment. It's meant to Ooh. provoke thought, and you know, Colin, you said it doesn't doesn't pr- provoke thought for you.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It
1: does for me. And and I'll say that I love the story. I think it's exactly the kind of short story I like.
2: Yep. Uh, more more power to you. I'm gonna mm. chime in and agree with you and Emily would also agree with you too. Okay. Uh and so em- Emily actually read and watched both films with me. And uh she she appreciated it because it was a, a she what she called a think piece for twenty twenty. And so mm. Michael Michael, Emily thanks you for choosing this one because she enjoyed it. She really enjoys Excellent. most of the stuff we do. So Right. Emily's thanks uh, to you.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So hopefully that gets me off the hook for rollerball. <laughs> I don't know about that. Ooh, I don't we're know. Very forgiving <laughs> podcast
1: hosts. <laughs> yes. I, I purposely did not mention that you had previously suggested rollerball, and none of us were big fans yeah. of that. Uh, that,
0: that. That's okay. Uh, I'll, I'll put my um, own, own neck on the chopping block for that one. But uh, I do sort of get where Colin's coming from with it, and I, I – can understand his criticisms of it as well as the movie i have a lot of issues now with the movie that being the gateway that i had into it after now reading the short story and seeing 2081 as a sort of a closer adaptation of it so i can sort of i can get where colin's coming from with that whole um inconsistency and that sort of thing but i can also Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, so, um, and I agree with you guys. Uh, yeah, it is a pretty good sort of thought experiment um, in mm-hmm. in in equity and all that sort of um, thing.
1: Yeah, and and maybe as we kind of talk through this, well, you know, the people who like the story or
0: bits of the movies or anything
1: will bring those up, and we can see if we can uh, bring Colin around to to liking something <laughs> about it. But we'll see.
3: <laughs> do do your best, guys. Okay.
1: <laughs> I think you mean your worst. <laughs>
3: If this I, i've seen and watched the worst you can do your best <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> i mean i wanted when i when i first read the story i thought okay this is this is coming off pretty ableist right because the only disabilities that it's showing are artificial ones right um where people are given things to to fry their brains a little bit and they're given weights to keep them from being you know amazing athletes they didn't really go into what the um disabilities that they gave musicians would be. Um, It's kind of implied that they're just all told to not play very well, which is fascinating. And I think that's the kind of thing that would happen in a society like this, where if you're not supposed to excel, there would be people who would just be like, okay, I can be mediocre.
0: Um, But also cheap instruments as well. So rather than having a um, great violinist on like a Stradivarius, it could be like on a um, really, really cheap, um, ill-tuned violin. right. And you have
1: to, instead of a bow, you get a herring.
0: Something like that, yeah. (laughs) Makes it um, difficult and smelly. Right. Let's talk
1: more about the story, um, because it is very short. And so I guess I will just go ahead and do a very, very quick walkthrough, right? You have the society in which everyone is made to be equal. Purportedly. Purportedly. Right. Purportedly, yes. So you have George and Hazel Bergeron, who are watching ballet, mediocre ballet, on the television. Hazel is naturally not very smart, and she doesn't have any disabilities on her. Right? Naturally average. Right. <laughs> and um, so you find out that their son, Harrison, who was above average, had been taken away at some point. And so in the middle of this ballet, Harrison breaks in. He's seven feet tall. He rips off all of his, uh, his weights and and disadvantages that they've given him and proclaims himself emperor and then uh, proceeds to dance and levitate <laughs> a little bit before being shot to death by the handicapper general who you would think the handicapper general, you know, she was a pretty good shot with that shotgun. Um,
2: you, you don't so, have to be a good shot to use a shotgun. That's the kind of the point of shotguns.
1: I guess that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is Harrison, this is the question I want to ask. Is Harrison Bergeron in the story a
0: hero? James, Michael?
2: Revolutionary, maybe. I don't know about hero, just quite.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with what James is saying. Um, I don't feel that he's a hero. I don't even feel that he's the focus of his own story because it's really more told from the perspective of his parents watching him on TV and what he does. So yeah. I I don't think he does anything yeah. sort of heroic. He just sort of says, well, look, I'm better than all of you. <laughs> out of my right. will so um mm-hmm. i don't think that's necessarily heroic no i i seem kind of like lord voldemort a <laughs> little bit a
2: little bit <laughs> I, I uh yeah to speak to michael's point i think the father was uh, probably the more of the mainish character if there was going to be a main character well, the focal mm. point because it's almost kind of all from his perspective yeah. yeah right yeah and there um i wanted to bring up something about the story because Thought it was interesting that he chose to make the uh, wife the average one versus, and it was kind of plainly obvious that the father was at least uh, probably as smart as an athletic as Harrison might have been, given all his weights and how loudly he mm-hmm. was getting distracted. It reminded me of a comment that we had from the last podcast uh, that Emmanuel had made with how Kurt Vonnegut tends to minimize his female characters or make them more mm. one dimensional mm mm-hmm. Very in line with that comment, I think, in this story as well.
1: Right, but isn't the handicapper general a woman?
2: Yeah, and she was very one dimensional.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, in in a story that's I don't know. It's a short enough story words. where
2: yeah, maybe you wouldn't notice any better, but yeah, it, it sticks to his it sticks to Vonnegut's theme, right? Mm.
1: Mm. So my theory on this, and you guys can, can chime in, is that the story is is not about equality or equity or um you know, affirmative action or anything like that, right? It's more about conformity. And James, what you said about mm-hmm. the about George being probably as able as Harrison uh, kind of feeds into that, right? But he has he has gone along with it. Right. Because cause even Hazel is telling him, hey, you know, pull some of the, I think it's actually mentioned that it's lead shot that's in his weights, right? Yeah. Uh, which is ironic given the shotgun later. <laughs> Um, and he he isn't going to do it, right? Because he's too afraid of getting fined. Mm-hmm. There's kind of uh, there's more than one response to seeing people excel past you, right? Doing better than you are, right? I can, I can look at uh, amazing feats of athleticism, and that can evoke in me either admiration or envy. And the uh, the story tends to say, well, envy is bad, in at least all these other things. Therefore, we're going to eliminate all the, right.
2: the people
1: who excel. Yeah, Uh, but I'm not. But you know, instead of uh, instead of telling people to not envy, they could just instruct
0: people to admire. True, because I think there's a lot of examples of um, science and art that sort of have come from the lower end of the spectrum as well. I mean, Mm. um, you know, people like Buckminster Fuller who was going to throw himself into, I think it was Lake Michigan. Um, until he sort of had a bit of an epiphany and said, well, you know, I'll dedicate my life to learning as much as I can or um, Vincent van Gogh um, with his depression, that um, there are things that can come from those lower states or even lower, um, lower areas that can bring you up to that higher sort of level. Um, mm-hmm. So I just feel that evening everyone out sort of, the gates, any sort of things that could, you know, um, bring someone from where they are to where they were and, um, vice versa. Yeah. Well, and, um, like
1: Elaine was saying, when we were eating dinner, we were talking about it. Um, she's like, well, I mean, if everybody in the society, if no one's allowed to be smart, who's running things. And I feel like, like, that's one of the questions that the story ought definitely, uh, brings up, right? right. It, this doesn't make any sense unless there is an elite somewhere who's actually running things. Mm-hmm. In which case, it's, Cue the movie. it's just another, it's, an, it's, a, <laughs> yeah. it's a thing like, um, Mustafa Mond in, um, brave new world, right? Right. Right. Where he's, he's up there making sure that there's no ideas put into any of their, their yeah. things, right? Cause ideas are dangerous.
2: Yes. Yeah, this, this was in line with me on another thought piece with like uh, brave new world because it's, it's a good, like, mm-hmm. what if question. And,
1: and uh, consistent with that, Colin didn't like Brave New World.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I also contested this is science fiction.
1: Okay. I did want to talk about that. I mean, what do you base that
3: on? Well, anything that someone writes that isn't true falls in the realm of speculative fiction. The speculation is what if,
2: mm-hmm.
3: right? Mm-hmm. What if you took a, a, a normal guy who happened to work at a bank and you threw him in jail with a bunch of criminals? What would happen to him? Well, Mm -hmm. since he's a geology buff, he would dig his way out and you would have the Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) Nowhere near being science fiction.
2: Right. Right? Oh, but this happened in the future though, Colin. That makes it science fiction.
3: Well, you could have (laughs) – that story that I just talked about could have happened to anybody at any time.
2: Right. Well, no, no, because if they were in prison in the future, they wouldn't dig that. They'd use lasers. (laughs) Maybe, but it wouldn't make it science fiction. Well, yeah, we didn't have lasers then. What lasers now? <laughs> We've had lasers for seventy years.
1: <laughs> all right, ease up on the lasers, James. Got to make his point.
2: Yeah. But I want lasers on dinosaur heads. No, you want lasers on shark heads. Oh yeah, sharks.
1: Yeah, you They're were thinking lasers. of uh, Kung Fury.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: But the laser Raptors, right?
3: <laughs> yep. Right. And so then you get the other end of the spectrum of science fiction, which is you know the Martian and Eternity's End and all these things that are undoubtedly science fiction. Right, and mm-hmm. in the middle you have all these things which are science fictiony. Like, mm-hmm. uh, let me a, c- a couple of examples: uh, those who walk away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin, nascent science that one. fiction. But it's a it, you should. It's a much better story than uh, <laughs> Kurt, <or> Harrison Bergeron. <laughs> uh, uh, the most dangerous prey, the lottery. Right. So yeah, I, I don't know that just saying that you're going to do a social experiment makes it science fiction. I don't know. To me,
1: it does. And to, to me, it's a dystopia, which is clearly a science fiction
3: yeah.
1: category.
2: Well, I don't but, know. you know,
3: everyone's pretty happy and they've got television. That's not very dystopian. It doesn't remind me of, uh, uh, it doesn't remind me of the hunger games. It doesn't remind me of anything that's post-apocalyptic. It doesn't remind me well, of, uh, children of men. Those are all pretty well-established dystopias.
1: Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't think you're right that everybody's happy.
3: Um, right.
1: And, and, and the, the other part of it is, in a dystopia, the people may be happy. There's plenty of happy people in Brave New World, but it's definitely science fiction. Um, and th- the fact is, it's supposed to. Ha- the reader is supposed to bring their thought to it and go, I wouldn't be happy in this. And that's what, that's what this one is. Um, I don't know. To me, it's clearly science fiction, but we may have different definitions. That's, that's part of the problem.
0: That could be. I think it's just the technology, though. The fact that everyone has those handicaps in their ears that are controlled, obviously, remotely from somewhere else by the right. non-mentioned elite class, that, that to me, sort of makes it science fiction. Um, and I know it's not as post-apocalyptic as other dystopias, but it doesn't make it any less dysfunctional. I think that's... Mm. I I agree with the term of being a dystopia, but I think uh, a dystopia can be a dystopia without being um, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic as well. It could be dysfunctional um, the same way that um, um, uh, regimes that are not democratic still have a government. It's not a government Mm -hmm. that's voted for by the people Um, or, you know, has any sort of reference to the people, but it's still a government nevertheless. So that's sort of my take on it is that um, it has those technology things to keep the people in line, which are obviously not controlled by them, and that if um, the actual people don't want them, to me, that's sort of what makes it science fiction in my books anyway. Hmm.
3: Yeah, Yeah. except that playing loud things in people's ears through headphones – We've called that radio and we've had radio since the thirties. I don't
1: think you have to have futuristic technology to be science fiction.
3: Oh, well, they're steampunk.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think
0: science fiction and speculative fiction are practically indistinguishable for me. But that being said, I'll I accept Colin's point previously about Shawshank Redemption. You take that back a hundred years and you've got Count of Monte Cristo.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Touche.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I, that I think is interesting here is the, um, rather than society kind of owing everyone equity, I, I, I flip it the other way and go kind of Spider-Man too, right? Where, where it's like, what do we owe society? Um, you have Doc Ock telling, um, Peter Parker, right? Your intelligence is a gift and it's, you use it for the good of mankind. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so to me, th- those are the kind of things that the story makes me think about, um, what does society owe us? What do we owe society? And you have some of those. I I, uh, I looked up, there's that image the, of the kids outside of a fence uh, where there's a ball game going on, and there's uh, equality, equity, and justice, where mm-hmm. equality, everybody gets the same size box to stand on, uh, even though one of them is still too short to see over the fence. <laughs> and then equity, everybody gets a box so that they're all at the same height. And then justice is the fence is see-through now. Um, so it removes the systemic huh. part of it and and uh, i don't know the story got me thinking about that kind of thing just because of the whole idea of is it a good thing for everybody to be equal
0: probably not um but yeah with the superhero vein i sort of went a different path and went the incredibles and thought of some um, syndrome saying if everybody's special then no one is right yeah but that was just sort of my hot take on it but um but, yeah, my, my thoughts are that basically if everyone is in that sort of state where they can't think, they can't act and that sort of thing, that there's not going to be anyone that excels. There's not going to be anyone that is, um, you know, doing different things, thinking differently and, and pushing the society along, which is, it would just um, be in sort of a, a state of homeostasis. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, there's not going to be any inspiration or creativity to spur mm-hmm. innovation.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, you get no Mozarts. and
2: A nation of stagnation. Stagnation nation. <laughs> I like it.
1: Yeah, yeah no Mozarts, no, uh, no Lin-Manuel, no Spielberg.
2: But is it worth it? No, I don't think so. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, so one of the things I like about such a short story is this one is, like I said, the fact that it can bring up questions to think about and then – it's great for adaptations because you can try to answer some of those questions.
2: Right. And your results may vary about what the answers are. But you can at least explore them. Yeah. Right. That's one of the things I liked about the, the movie, or the, the full-length film, I guess you could say. Okay. Well, I, on that note,
1: we can move that direction unless anybody has anything else they want to say about the story. Sure. I'm good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Collins, <laughs> Collins
1: just like how, just, how much
2: longer can we argue that science fiction versus speculative fiction versus
1: fantasy fiction? <laughs> I mean, I mean, in a sense, right? Your definition of science fiction it it is kind of a personal thing, right? Because there are people who think if there is anything that is not actually possible, um, then it's not science fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So, so hard science fiction would be the limit, so The Martian and Red Mars right. and that kind of stuff. And, you, and as soon as you go faster than light, it's no longer science fiction; it's fantasy hmm so, yeah. so I'm not I'm not gonna argue uh, the the point with Colin about what science fiction is. Um, you know, we all have different lines and it's okay.
0: We're all not made to be equal.
1: <laughs>
0: right, exactly.
3: <laughs> yes. We don't have equity, but we have equality because even though we don't agree, we all have our own opinions and everyone respects everyone else's opinion.
1: Right. Why don't we go ahead and um let's go chronological here, right? Go with the nineteen ninety five cable television movie. <laughs> uh adapted <laughs> it was produced for showtime which i was a little surprised about uh, after watching it and right. you know full disclosure here could not find it anywhere and ended up uh watching it on youtube
3: it's the only place um, you can find it yeah yeah i yeah.
0: yeah, can't even buy it for vhs
1: michael did you watch it on uh, on vhs
0: yes back, back in the <laughs> day um can i buy vhs okay. yeah um no i i, I have I've bought a copy of um, Something Wicked This Way Comes just in case, you know, I'm um, you know, going invite off Phil to do something with Ray Bradbury. Um, no, I'm kidding. Mm. Um, yeah, it's because <laughs> that was the only way I could find it. And I've fortunately got a, um, a VHS to DVD player, um, which with our sort of copyright laws, we can format shift from VHS to DVD. Can't do anything else, but we can format shift from, VHS right. to DVD, right. so, right. yeah, but that's the only place I've seen it as well. I don't think it's ever gotten a DVD release that I'm aware of.
2: I don't think so. I looked on, I uh, actually looked on Amazon Prime just to check and see if it was there versus YouTube. And then on Amazon, it just says, VHS, not available. <laughs> right. So, yes. So, yeah. it was released
1: on VHS in 1998. Prior to that, it was just on television. And I'm not even sure how oh, it interesting. Was- released?
2: Well, Showtime, right? Yeah, Cable. I guess. Yeah, Not nearly enough uh, bedtime com- content for Showtime.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay, now I understand the context. Okay. Um, although I think some of the, um, the footage they show in it may have been what could have caused it to be shown on that network, though. Um, some of the Holocaust Im- imagery and that sort of stuff. Yeah.
2: Oh. Yeah, that stuff was was pretty brutal. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of swearing. There
0: was. That's yeah. Cool, yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Tom. Yeah, so we you shouldn't, shouldn't mention, find that on
3: network TV.
1: So I don't think I mentioned that in the story Harrison Bergeron is seven feet tall. And so naturally they cast Sean Astin to play him <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> right.
2: Um. <laughs> you mean they cast Samwise Gamgee?
1: yeah it's kind of like tom cruise getting cast to play jack reacher who's this famously huge (laughs) character in the book um although that that is actually a really good movie jack reacher
3: in the movie Um, though there are no physical handicaps they're all mental
1: yes yes and so that's that's the major well one of the major differences here other than it's expanded out to feature length and so you have to pad it out somehow Mm -hmm.
3: um an awful lot of padding
1: a lot yeah um but this one you know this one well let's let's go around um Colin, you didn't like the 1995 movie? No. <laughs> Two hours of dreck? <laughs> uh,
0: Ninety nine minutes.
3: Okay.
1: Well, what about you, Michael?
0: Yeah, um, I initially liked it when I was. That was my only exposure to it. But now, having read the the book and seen 2081, I can see a lot of issues with it. Um, you know, uh, the fact that they changed the handicaps to a headband and. Of, during the movie, they can obviously take off the headbands with no issues, you know. Oh, right. um, the the fact that the mother and father are sort of, um, they have the same names, but they're not fleshed out in any way, shape or form. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the addition of the, the class above doing a lot of stuff, um, although I did find the president, Eugene Levy playing the president. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to get political, but... Um, yeah um (laughs) it just seems very
3: australian you can get political (laughs) okay
0: Uh, yeah but um it seems sort of um somewhat prescient i think in the way Mm. that not only Mm -hmm. that he he played it but also (laughs) the way that um his um methodology sort of gave him the results that he wanted but um yeah, um, there were dissenting sort of people that didn't think that it should happen that sort of way. If that makes sense, if I'm not being too vague about it to avoid persecution. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's a point in the
1: in the movie where he's negotiating in a pretty ham handed way.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. Um, and the other thing, as an Australian as well, was the fact that they mentioned Farlap, which I'm sure is a reference that may or may not have went over everyone else's heads.
2: Pretty sure, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> app is, um, the best way I can contextualize it is to say app is to Australia what biscuit was to America. Oh, um, okay. Cool. Yeah, so it was a horse that kept an um, apparently he had a larger-than-normal heart, which um, I, I remember because when I was out seven or eight my dad and my mum and my brother and i went to canberra where they actually have his heart on display um in a museum. yeah and there's yeah so it was a horse that kept on winning and winning and it happened at the beginning of the depression so it brought um pretty much the whole country together and they kept on handicapping him and handicapping me and i think out of was reading on uh, Wikipedia, they said out of 35 races in the year, he, he came first in like 32 of them. Wow. So, yeah, so just really brought the nation together. But they kept on handicapping, handicapping. They got him to Mexico, and apparently, he was either killed or there was an accident with medications <laughs> and whatnot. Um, and yeah, he, he died. So, it was just um, funny how they used that horse as an example. Um, of think, something getting handicapped to keep them you know from from achieving um hmm. yeah you could almost say it was probably a um a reference that um alluded to the eventual outcome right. This
1: movie is interesting to me in that it kinda of, it really leans into the dystopia and totalitarianism uh and it reminds me a little of starship troopers in that way um where there's the executions for shoplifting and uh, oh yeah. Other petty crimes and they're just one after another, right? It's like it's the thing. It wasn't that in Starship Troopers, you know the yeah. trial was at 7, the execution will be at 11. Yep. Yep.
2: <laughs> All televised.
1: <laughs> okay. So, Colin, did you did you verify the checkmate in the chess game early in the movie? No. Okay. I maintain and I want somebody to fact check this for me. Go, go back to the movie and watch where Harrison is playing with his brother. And he says checkmate, and I—I I swear it is not checkmate.
2: Yeah, I don't know. So I didn't feel like I had a good enough view of the chess pieces to see, given the quality of the film. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't
1: know. I mean, I did just watch the Queen's Gambit, so I'm an expert. <laughs> yeah.
2: But, you know, he, he could tell his brother checkmate, and his brother wouldn't even know the difference. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's kind of a moot point.
1: <laughs> no. The thing that cracked me up about this one is, you know, it starts off with Harrison in school, and everybody around him is getting Ds and Cs and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he has, he has an A. And I'm like, I mean, if you really want to succeed, you could blow a test, you know?
2: Right. It has been done. Yeah, that was kind of funny. Well, you think they would flip the scale? if they really wanted to encourage the other way around, right? But then everybody gets A's.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Have you ever been in a class where where everybody did poorly on a test except for one person? Or a couple people?
2: Yeah, and they were thrown out of the curve. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much.
1: When I took general chemistry in college, I had had uh, advanced placement chemistry in high school, Mm -hmm. and so I'd kind of already done like the whole first semester's worth of work, even though... I think I got a C in it in high school. Um, but uh, so I found it pretty easy and we had it, we had a test one time and the average was like a 53 uh, on the test. Damn. And there was one guy, Greg who got 106 um, <laughs> <laughs> because they always, always put like 110 points on the test. And so you could get a maximum of, a, of 110% right. essentially. Um, he graded it out of a hundred. Um, and the guy sitting next to me had, had like a 42, and I got my test back, and I, and I thought it said 44. Um, but the prof's handwriting was a little, little wonky. It was actually a 94. And so oh. <laughs> the guy next to me it was like, oh, you bastard. <laughs> like, what? It's a 40- Oh, it's a
3: 94. OK. Yeah, sorry about that, Tori.
0: Did anyone else spot the two cameos in the movie at all? Or
3: I saw Kurt Vonnegut.
0: Oh, I don't think I
2: saw him. Really? I might have seen him, but I would say I wouldn't have noticed him, I think.
3: Yeah. He's on the file picture for the guy that was dancing on the screen in the very beginning.
2: Oh, wow. That was, that
0: was kind
2: Oh, I didn't
0: see that. I didn't know that. <laughs> cool. I was only talking about, um, Sean Aston's dad, John Aston, plays, uh, um, announcer at the beginning when they're talking about the golf with the wonky, um, putter and right oh, at yo. the very end, <laughs> right at the very end, um, spoilers. Um, Harrison and the um, his girlfriend's son is played by a very, very young Hayden Christensen, a.k.a. Anakin Skywalker. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Interesting. Okay. No, I did not catch that at all. Uh, it took me a couple of times to watch it, so, um, yeah, just sort of went, hang on, and, and obviously YouTube um, version doesn't have the credits, so,
2: yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, so...
1: I, I liked the uh, the doctor who was supposed to be doing the lobotomy on, on Harrison was played by the guy who played Lacroix in uh, Forever Night, Nigel Bennett. So hmm. that's how I knew knew him. I loved that show. Um, James, what did you think? I, the first time they mentioned the, the secret place that he could go to be with other smart people called the Head House. <laughs> I was like, oh, James is going to have fun with this
2: one. Yeah, that place was hilarious. <laughs> I didn't think check, chess would be so sexy, <laughs> right? And the, yeah, just the way they were talking the entire time about all of that—it it cracked me and Emily up.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a smart person brothel.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, when being smart is illegal, right? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I so the thing that
1: I do like about this movie is that like it it answers that that idea that. You're going to have to have an elite somewhere who are actually keeping the society running because you can't have a bunch of doofuses actually running things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, no comment on 2020, <laughs> um, but I did. I did like at some point where they were they were talking about President Eugene Levy, and uh, mm-hmm. somebody said the president does not understand the complexity
2: of the matter.
3: <laughs>
2: yeah, might Whoa. happen more frequently than you think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I happen to thought. This movie was incredibly prescient for 2020 and our current administration. <laughs> well, especially because yeah. the movie started out in the um, um, I thought it was actually starting like back in time or something like that. Because I recognized all the cars and <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. like, wait a minute, this is in the 50s, what's going on here? And then they started like exposing what was going on. And that's what reminded me of um Reagan's campaign and hence Trump's campaign with Make America Great Again. Is there
1: morning in America?
2: Well, no, they're, they're alluding to what's colloquially known as the golden age of America, which is right. the post-World War II era in the late forties mm-hmm. and fifties. And here we have something, you know, illustrating the fifties. And even the, uh, the female character said, so she's like, you know, they've made, they made everything the fifties. Cause that's when America was the, the greatest or something like that.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and if, uh, pioneers of industry are are as average as everybody else. It's not like you're gonna get brand new, fancy flying cars or something.
2: Well that's another thing I yeah. thought of too. It's like society uh, society's not gonna progress much further than this if nobody is doing anything anyway. So they got cars mm-hmm. from the fifties,
0: TVs Vs from the fifties and all that too. <laughs> right. Yeah, but um, that sort of um fits in with what Colin was saying though about the inconsistencies because they say they've got the fifties aesthetic and then Right at the very end, his son's using something that looks like a cross between a a um, five CD stacker and a DVD player right. hooked up to the right. old TV. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but also the choice of the fifties is interesting as well because um, didn't Einstein come up with relativity, general rel- his theory of general relativity in the fifties?
1: I don't remember. No, I thought it was nineteen fourteen.
0: No, relativity
2: would have been in the. Yeah, early much relatively would have been much earlier than that because that led to okay. um, atomic physics and the bomb. Well, ah, so spe- okay. special
1: relativity was 1905, um, yeah. and I think general rel- relativity was just like a decade later,
0: 1915. Yeah, sorry, okay, my mistake. But um, I suppose the point that I was sort of trying to make was that there was still a lot of, um of well, Sputnik, obviously um mm-hmm. right. and that sort of stuff that you know there was things that were happening intellectually in the 50s so they yeah it seems like a very sort of cherry picked um representation of that yeah yeah well and it, it doesn't
1: present that uh any other countries are have the same kind of society that right. the US no, does no
2: it doesn't <clears throat> and I've- I, th- I would feel that this would be a hard thing to maintain and still maintain power in the world if you're making right. your entire population dumb. And, mm-hmm. but, but, I mean, you do have that elite class, and I guess to counter Colin's point, I don't think this was ever really about equality. I think equality was the veil in which to create more inequality and created that elite class that is now ruling society and the country through the mm-hmm. little puppets of a president. Except that the story doesn't talk about that at all. No, it in doesn't. In fact,
3: I would postulate that if it wasn't in the movie, the the long movie from uh, oh, yeah. five,
2: that we wouldn't even be talking about that. No, I, I think hmm, okay. Oh, I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that one because <laughs> I think that's what the uh, HGs are supposed to be. At least that was kind of my interpretation. Because there's got to be somebody. There's this is definitely I thought it was definitely a tool of coercion by some elite class to maintain control over society. And to yeah, me and to that me that the HG was at least the closest thing to that elite society we we're going to get to from the short story. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I so I will say I before watching any of the media my thinking, you know, something that I wrote down was who is running the society. Yeah. Um because I feel like that's an obvious question. And so so you you do kind of postulate a hypothetical elite class. Yep. And you know, it's it's similar to you know, the Soviet Union was supposed to be this uh, paradise of equality, right? Where, ev- where everyone would have uh, a living wage and, and this kind of stuff. But you still ended up with an elite who had all the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, it was somebody's idea to do this. And maybe their original ideal was that everyone would be uh, taken care of. Um, but it ended up being that the people who actually got control just used that to keep people yeah. down. And that's where this movie reminds me a little bit of um Equilibrium. Oh
2: yeah. <laughs> where no where instead
1: of in, instead of controlling emotion, right? Because emotion causes wars and that kind of stuff. They're they're saying we need to get rid of envy.
2: Mhm. Yeah. There there's uh, no no thought of trying to find a a balance or a happy middle, right? Right. Happy path.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did like that uh that at some point like they're stripping the comedy out of comedies to make them less funny. <laughs> <laughs> which that that reminded me of brave new world and the oh I'm sorry but this thing has ideas in it and and you know we right. don't want ideas
0: or even that um harrison suggests that they um do a program and it sounds or has all the hallmarks of either um mr rogers or um sesame street
2: sesame street is totally what i thought of <laughs> oh, okay <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, and just the fact that the the response is basically, yeah, no, just do your job. Um, what happens if somebody misses that? How can we bring them sort of up to that level? So it's just better to just right. a, and in that sort of way, it's almost like a bit of a Russian doll sort of thing where um, hmm. Harrison's been plucked out of the oppressive regime to run it, but he himself can't sort of do Anything within that, so he himself mm-hmm. is being repressed by the regime that he's now a part of to run to repress the other people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I know that's very um, PKD, but um, or maybe I'm just reading it too much into it. <laughs> no, I don't think
2: so. I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> well,
1: what do you guys think of the ending? Because because you have him uh, do kind of like the end of Scrooged, right? Where where he kind of has his moment where where he has a camera and and is able to uh, to broadcast his ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And and play amazing music and that kind of stuff. And he's hoping that showing people these things will have an effect,
2: right? Well, I think that's in line with what they did in the story, or just a little bit longer version of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. I think my biggest problem with the movie is is uh, that it ends on kind of an uplifting note, and I didn't want that. I wanted it to end with him blowing himself away and having not impacted anything.
0: I thought that would have been consistent.
1: Right. But I like a downer ending. So. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. No, I get what you mean, Seth. And um, yeah, it was – obviously, it's different to the story where he's killed by someone else. He sort of um, – does it on live TV as well, which sort of made me think of um, like that um, newsreader that you guys had over there, that uh, I think it was Christine Chubbuck, that committed suicide live on TV, first person to ever do it. Um, so it was just that whole sort of TV being sort of the tool that he's using to get his ideas and stuff out. But it's just more a case of, um, yeah, it, it was a bit of an, I wouldn't say uplifting, I'd say op- maybe optimistic that, you know, um, these yeah. regimes can happen, well, you know, metaphorically, but also that there will always be um, people that will work underneath that sort of regime to keep things going, same way that um, in Fahrenheit 451, the people memorising the books because the books mm. get burnt um, um, and... That sort of thing, where basically there is always going to be a um, a, a group of people, whether they're sort of um, uh, an official thing or a non official thing, or they just do it themselves, that will always be that sort of undercurrent of um, of right. re- rebellion. I suppose is the best way I can put it.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I had never heard of Christine Chubbuck. It's tragic. Yeah, that's not an uplifting story. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not. No. No, no, that's not. In the
1: nineteen ninety five movie, were his parents watching at that point?
2: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh at
1: least his dad was. Oh right. And and so that's what I liked about the ending, where where yeah. um, you know, the static or whatever like he doesn't remember what he's just seen, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you ready to move on to twenty eighty one? Sure. Only one left, Colin. Only one left. I'm still here, <laughs> right? 2081, 24-minute movie, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. directed by, or yeah, you know, I guess, filmed by Chandler Tuttle, and this one stars oh, Army who, Hammer, Army Hammer, Army Hammer as yeah. Harrison Bergeron,
2: who's a little more appropriate more, more appropriate, form. I think, of an arm. Yeah, Harrison Bergeron.
1: Yeah, <laughs> also stars um, James Cosmo. As uh, George Bergeron. And yeah. he, he played uh, Hamish's dad in yeah. uh, Braveheart, Braveheart. and yeah, that was awesome. Angus MacLeod in uh, <laughs> Highlander. And uh, Julie Hagerty as Hazel uh, in another example of typecasting for Julie <laughs> Hagerty. Um, uh, famous of the airplane movies and right. uh, What About Bob? <laughs> <laughs> where she played essentially
0: the same character. You do know that airplane yeah. is not called airplane in Australia. We actually call it flying high. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> There's a whole story behind that, but I don't think um, everyone wants to hear that on here. But yeah, I just thought I'd point that out.
2: I love it. Yeah. So, what is there to say about this? <laughs>
1: um, well, Michael, why don't you start us off with sure. of the 2081?
0: I, I thought it was a better adaptation. Um, I liked it a lot better. There was a lot of little things that I think made it better, which was. Um, I thought the production design was good because it gave mm-hmm. you the proper, you know, there's the weights, there's the there's the um thing in his ear, there's the masks, um, everything sort of mm-hmm. um as you would sort of imagine it. Um I I think Julie Haggerty though, I think she did a really good job with her um doing a lot more with what she was given than was on the page mm-hmm. as well. Um, I love the scene where she's, um, I don't know if she's knitting or crocheting, but um, she looks down and then sees that the jumper she's knitting, she's just knitted the arm ridiculously long. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because she's just been, I I get this image, she's just been doing it, doing it, doing it. Okay, so where am I up to? Oh. (laughs) <laughs> okay yeah i'll just go do the dishes well, it's for her, now. they're seven foot son yeah <laughs> with extremely long arms uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. um so i thought she did really well with that and especially with the ending where um it is a bit of a weird line for her to say that you know wow that was a doozy and he and um the husband says you know you can say that again and she literally says it again as if Right. You know, that's what he asked, so um, mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of that, and that I didn't get any of that from the 95 movie the The parents in that were just, i would say just real um not even cookie cutter they were just it was like yeah. a, a pastiche of uh, of a character, not even you know mm-hmm. um, impressionistic or something like that. It just wasn't even you wouldn't even call them real characters. I wouldn't even call his brother in the movie. Um, the 95 movie, a real character, whereas um, it felt like the 2081 was more like a more faithful adaptation of the short story. It focused on his parents. Harrison was in it, but um, not as much as he is the main character of the 95 movie. They sort of Mm -hmm. moved the focus with the 95 movie, so... um, yeah, so I thought it was a, a far better movie. And the fact that it only goes for 24 minutes, um, Colin may disagree, but I don't think it wears out its welcome. It just basically goes, this is the story, this is the beginning, this is the end, done. No sort of um, uplifting ending bit where hope springs on you know eternally after the regime. It's literally this is a story, this is the beginning, this is the middle, this is the end, done. Mm-hmm.
3: To do a, a to do a very faithful adaptation, you couldn't make it much longer than that. It might have even been too long at twenty four minutes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't think it was too long, but yeah, <laughs> I yeah, felt like I it was pretty so. faithful. And I think the added time between the story and the movie might have been just the music and and the panning, yeah, and some, yeah. some slight memory scenes. I suppose.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. I liked some of the camera work. I like the, the production values were definitely higher.
2: I thought the production in, quality of twenty eight one yeah. really good, actually. And I like, I like mm-hmm. the production quality, the actors and the music. The music was pretty good. Mm-hmm. You can at least agree with that, Colin.
3: The beginning part of the music was not very good because everyone was trying oh, to well, sound bad yeah. on
2: purpose.
3: <laughs> right. <laughs> After that, it, it, it did Touché. get quite a bit better. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, we have a positive. <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: you, you hmm. have to understand that in my opinion, that was saying that was like a very, very nice painting of feces.
0: but still they did the best job they could
3: (laughs) it it was brown and grainy just like the real stuff
1: (laughs) mythbusters proved you can polish a turd so (laughs) yes so colin did you look for the thing that i mentioned earlier
3: i i tried to and i saw nothing
1: okay so um you had commented i think i think when we were watching we we kind of did a virtual uh, watch of 2081 together. And Colin had mentioned that the government officials weren't handicapped. Um, and I thought, is that a built-in joke about government officials? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but very, very early in the movie, you get a view of the handicapper general on television and she mm-hmm. is wearing handicaps. And then later in the movie, when she comes along to dispose of harrison bergeron mm-hmm. uh she is not wearing any and so it's yeah. the the movie is giving you a little hint behind the scenes of this is all for show and really you know the power brokers behind the scenes don't practice what they preach
3: imagine that oh. that's certainly one interpretation of the short story
1: yeah and and so th- that's um that's one thing that I like about it right it it is a quite faithful adaptation but it does kind of give a few hints of um we're going to br- we're going to emphasize this part of it that you know is one way one thing you can emphasize in the story but may not be you know what everybody sees
2: mm-hmm.
1: so i like the conviction <laughs> or it could just be a continuity error could be um but i don't know it it looked deliberate to me
3: okay
1: i mean cuz wear- i think she's wearing completely different clothing
3: People do tend to, to change clothing over time.
1: <laughs> um, I, I did think it was interesting that at some point um, Harrison comes in and credit to the filmmakers here that, you know, they couldn't really show him being superhuman uh, without extensive wire work. Right. Mm. And so they have him, you know, leap up from, uh, from the seats onto the stage, right. While he's got all these weights on, but you don't really see it, right. You just kind of hear it and hear the audience reaction, which I thought was pretty cool.
2: Well, and that snapping of the yoke, I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, the thing was thick.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I like that um, you know he's listening to the musicians and he's like, "Uh, nope, just you, just you play, (laughs) and so just the cellist starts playing. Then of course, you know, after a while, it's not just the cellist anymore. So I don't know if it's just that the rest of the uh, orchestra was like, well, I guess we could play better too, or or if it's not literal music, right? That's the score, not the guy playing, right? I don't know.
2: Earlier we had talked about how, how would you handicap the musicians? And unfortunately they didn't really do that in the movie uh, either. I guess the short film, right? Cause I, I was looking right. for some way of how they handicapped them in the, in the film. And I didn't really see anything. So, Cause Emily yeah. and I were also wondering the same thing. I was like, are they even handicapped? How, do, how would you handicap yeah. them anyway to be able to do what they're doing?
1: I don't well, know. the story doesn't say that the musicians were handicapped in any way. Because Harrison says to them, right, play your best.
3: Right. And he's the emperor, so he's got that authority to do it.
1: Right. right. That's one of the major changes here, right? Um, I, I feel like this movie presents Harrison absolutely mm-hmm. as
2: a hero. Oh, you, oh, really?
1: Yeah. Because he's he's basically saying, you haven't seen, uh, you know, in, in this movie, mm, he, he's saying, uh, you, you haven't seen it, right? You haven't right. seen greatness. You haven't seen any of these things. And so I'm going to show that to you. And so he breaks his, his stuff and then starts dancing. There is no flight in the dancing, um, which I was a little disappointed by, <laughs> by putting on my coat. I,
2: I did kind of expect that. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. like, oh.
1: <laughs> well, I think the jump up onto the stage is kind of a, a nod to the uh, yeah. sort of levitation in the story.
2: I guess you I, I thought guess the whole thing right. was
0: figurative anyway.
2: He he didn't really uh, announce himself as emperor. No, he like didn't. Like he did in the book, Yeah.
0: But he also had a bomb. So to me, that's not really – and the backup bomb as well. Oh, uh, I don't know if that, it was a bomb or whether it was – No, it wasn't could, a
2: backup bomb. It was a backup transmitter.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah.
3: And the bomb was just there to distract them. Yeah,
0: the bomb was yep. – exactly. Yeah.
2: I thought that was pretty sick because at first I thought he had a backup bomb too. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that's not cool. You're going to blow up the theater and like, yeah. distract you from your point. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: it's not cool to put people under threat of being blown up. Yeah. Oh, that, no. That's still a bad but thing then, to do. But
2: then he didn't. Right. That's what I, Yeah, I thought that was a cool twist in for that
0: short film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But with the musicians, I did have a question for um, Colin, which is mm-hmm. if you were told to only play something like elevator music or music, and you could never play <laughs> classical music ever again, wouldn't you feel handicapped or would the joy of you just playing the instrument mm-hmm. be enough?
3: So I'll I'll be straight. I really haven't played class, you know classical classical music in about twenty years, and I I miss a certain part of it. Most of what I play these days is uh, show tunes and uh, movie adaptation movie score adaptations, and then lots of Christian worship music. But I do miss playing classical music, and I can tell you exactly how you would screw up a group of musicians. There's, there's several ways you could mm-hmm. give them all different pieces of music to play. <laughs> right. <laughs> you could put all of them in different keys. Mm-hmm. You could uh, not require any level of training or proficiency on the instruments. Um, and then you could do something very similar to what they were doing uh, with the, with the earbuds where mm-hmm. you feed everybody a slightly different tempo. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. Mess with the click track and you mess with uh, everything.
3: Yeah. Oh, uh, it would also I, prevent them from hearing each other and self-correcting that. So right.
1: I can't remember, Colin, if if I've told the story about um, basically experiencing the same thing you were talking about about giving them different pieces of music to play. Um, can't remember if I talked about it on the podcast, but there was <laughs> there was one time I was at Elaine's uh, little church in Arago, uh, Oregon a community. I think there's 500 people in the in the city. And uh-huh. about 90 people can fit in this little tiny church. <laughs> and I had brought some music with me, you know, just on a accompaniment track. And I, I sang a song uh, and it was Christmas time. And after I sang, maybe it was before I sang. Now I can't even remember. <laughs> I'll have to ask Elaine. Um, uh, one of the local kids came up and played a trumpet piece accompanied by a piano. And oh, wow. they played in different keys. <laughs> and and I'm not sure if it was like that they I, – I think I've asked you about this, right? Would, would uh, something in the key of C for a piano be the same in the key of C for a trumpet?
3: Uh, boy, so, you know, as a musician, I am not very accomplished. You mm-hmm. could ask Kathy or Tim that question and they would know. Okay. Um, but I can tell you that very thing has happened to me at our church. Where you've gotten music that was the wrong key? Oh, really? Yep. Uh, yep. Ouch. And sometimes sometimes it's in the wrong key because, you know, there's the wind players and then there's the electronic band and then there's the choir. Right. Right. And we're we're all very different people. So if you mm-hmm. tell the electronic players, we're going to play this in D instead. Most of them can do it with no problem. Right. Some of the wind players can do it and almost all the choir people can do it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, they will say, well, you know, yes, this is in C and you have the piece in G just transpose. Right. But a lot of us we just play what's written on the page. Right. And so it's like, uh, <laughs> sure, you bet. Yeah. So
1: anyhow, I think back to that uh, hmm. that playing of, I think it was Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, several <laughs> verses of it, and it's Nightmare oh. Fuel. <laughs> <Eesh>. <laughs> Credit where it's due though, they played the whole thing. Eh. You think they would have picked it up in rehearsal? Uh, you're assuming there was a rehearsal. I didn't get a rehearsal. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Anything else to say about 2081?
0: No, but I think we've uncovered Colin's secret ability to be um, the Handicapper General for musicians. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah. No, I do appreciate him answering that question honestly. And, yeah, no, it was good. good discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, final thoughts about uh, anything that we talked about. Um, Colin, do you have
1: anything else to say? No. Nope. I think you have uh, kind of leapt to the... Uh, conclusion that you might just not be a fan of vonnegut
3: you know i I wondered about that uh i I read frankenstein i read a a pretty wide variety of things Mm -hmm. and i haven't liked anything i've read by kurt vonnegut now granted it's just two pieces but it's two of his you know apparently better known pieces yeah and uh yeah it just it doesn't work for me did you say frankenstein yeah You know that wasn't Vonnegut, though, right? (laughs) I know that wasn't Vonnegut, but it's also one of the misunderstood pieces of of classical science fiction.
2: Oh, Gotcha. I I thought maybe you were going to reveal a Kurt Vonnegut Frankenstein story for us. (laughs) No. (laughs) So what is it about Vonnegut that's that's, uh, rubbing you the wrong way?
3: Well, uh, I I think it's the lack of any kind of plot. And the fact that he deliberately wrote to be very flat affect – so and we're going to humiliate soldiers and talk about people dying and someone plotting to assassinate someone in the future and hmm. to have uh, a father watch his son die on television and a mother watch their son die on television and to have
2: no emotional response. Okay, so this is why we should have had you on the Slaughterhouse-Five thing. How did you think he was humiliating soldiers in that short story or story? I mean, but.
3: Oh, putting them in the putting the guy in the coat. It was the point of giving him that coat and making him wear the coat throughout the, the march into, uh, into Dresden. And it was pointed out to him that they were humiliating him.
2: Okay. So yeah. from somebody who's been in the military, we would totally do that. <laughs> if you did that to a prisoner, it'd be a violation of the Geneva convention. I don't think they had those back then, nor did the Nazis care. They had the Geneva. No, you're right. They did world have them because they came into effect after World War one, but the Nazis didn't give a crap about them. The Nazis totally ignored Geneva conventions in world war two.
1: Right. But the thing that, Colin, the thing you didn't like about it wasn't just that he was humiliated. It's that the character didn't seem to care.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's a story of a man with dementia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as being science fiction either. And I thought I was, I was kind of out there because every once in a while, you know, I I have a very left field position on a story like with Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. Michael Crichton agrees with me when he reviewed Slaughterhouse-Five in the 60s. Right, right. So just because there's a laser and alleged space travel (laughs) and other kinds of stuff, he's like, yeah, this is not science fiction.
2: Oh, it totally is. There's, there's aliens. Come on. He's hallucinating.
3: He's an old man with dementia. Well, that's the
2: other side. That's the flip side of the coin, but you have the literal side of the coin where it could be aliens with time travel. Mm -hmm. Well, you have an
3: unreliable narrator, just like with Frankenstein. Yeah. So
1: as I understand it, uh, the Sirens of Titan, which is another Vonnegut, actually kind of picks up a lot from harrison bergeron about the making people equal i haven't read it yet though
0: yeah i've i've heard that as well um and the only other thing that um um colin may get a laugh out of is that um kurt vonnegut actually had a cameo in the comedy back to school where um this rich guy mm. goes to uh, i'm assuming colin hasn't seen it right in so, dangerfield
3: yeah Rodney Dangerfield,
0: yeah. Yeah, actually hires Kurt Vonnegut to write his paper on Kurt Vonnegut, and then the teacher basically says, whoever wrote this has doesn't have the first idea to know about Kurt Vonnegut, and then the next scene has Kurt Vonnegut saying, yo, I don't know. I wrote what I wrote, you know. Just pay me, you know. So at least uh, hopefully that would give Colin some sort of um, enjoyment of Kurt Vonnegut indirectly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least a cheap laugh anyway.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I forgot to mention um you know the ending of of 2081 is a lot more true to the book, right? That um it does flip it so that because in the in the story Hazel actually sees Harrison get shot, where in the movie George does. And you know, he's he's sitting there watching it and then, you know, after after Harrison is killed after he's restored the broadcast. Um there's a big, you know, static sound and that kind of stuff, and it mm-hmm. kind of blows the memory of that out of his mind. And that is very true to the story, and I thought that was interesting, and it was the downer ending I was looking for. Mm. But then Hazel starts humming the melody that the cellist was playing, which I thought was I don't know. I, I thought that was maybe a hint that she was playing dumber than she really was. Um, or just the idea that uh that something beautiful can actually get through.
2: Yeah. I'll go with your second one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Though it might be on a yeah. level that she doesn't understand, right? It could be right. basically yeah. subliminal.
2: That 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 was yeah. kind of my thinking. Yeah. And the, as far as the swapping of the roles go, I think that was appropriate for the film's uh, focus anyway. Mm-hmm.
1: If you're going to have anybody kind of remembering what had happened to Harrison, it was going to be George.
0: Yeah. Right, right. And to be upset by it as well. So I sort of, um, mm-hmm. I, I can under, I can take what Colin's saying about there not being the emotional response for the ninety five one, but I I can't see it with the two thousand and nine because to me, you know, you know, the fact that he's white, Hazel picks up on the fact that he's upset, you know, and mm-hmm. she even though she sort of alludes links it with him um, having something happen with his handicap you know, um, that doesn't negate the fact that he is upset from what he has obviously witnessed. So, right. yeah, I just feel that 95, yeah, the the cardboard cutouts that play um, Harrison's parents don't really have an emotional response to it, but in the um, the later one, he, he definitely does. So, yeah, yeah, I think that sort of adds to... To the ending as well. Um, I mean, that's adding to what probably wasn't in the book, but um, it just adds that little bit of um, extra to it.
1: Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on twenty eighty one, James? No. No. Okay. I liked it. Yeah. Um, I I thought it was interesting for for a while. I was. Well, I guess we should get around to ranking them because that's what I was going to go into. Oh, so, okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, Michael, do you want to go first on rankings? Uh, yeah I liked the book. Um, i liked twenty eighty one not a huge fan of the ninety ninety five one anymore really after reading the book and seeing twenty eighty one
2: so mm-hmm all right what about you james i'm gonna go the exact opposite <laughs> really <laughs> yep with the full length film short film and the uh, story all right defend yourself i liked the uh fuller exploration of the concept of the of the full length film and going into mm-hmm. the Obviously, there has to be some sort of elite class ruling over these morons, I guess, and, and all that. Right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And all the allusions to, or I guess, I don't know. I think it might have been a result of the fact that it's 2020 we're watching this too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that heavily sways into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, Colin, uh, do you want to rank things?
3: I'm going to go short story, 2081 uh not a feature film
1: okay um hmm i th- i think i'm gonna go 2081 first and it just edges out the, the 95 one for kind of for the same reason as, as you james i like the fuller exp- exploration of uh, of what's in the story um mm-hmm. and talking about the elite but i feel like the 2081 movie did did lean that way or, or at least it um, it like, like hinted at it, it right yeah, it yeah, hinted at yeah, it, and yeah. I and I liked that, and I thought it was appropriate to the length of the film to mm-hmm. not actually develop it, but to just put hints in there for people who might be looking for it. Right. Um. Though, though, then I will put the story before the 1995 one, um, just because I there is some kind of ham-handed stuff in the in, in the
2: 95 one. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, that way we get uh, entirely different rankings. Yeah. Um, for everybody. So, so I do have an M rating. Okay. M rating of uh, B plus. Okay. Yeah. For the whole thing. For the whole thing, I'll say the whole thing. I think she she liked okay. the uh, the full length film. I, actually, I think she went along with my ranking basically for this for more or less mm-hmm. the same reasons. Um, she she liked seeing the fuller exploration of the possibilities of the short story. Um, nice. I think she also liked – I think she did like the, the um, twenty eighty one though for Ar- okay. for Army Hammer. Right. Yeah. yeah
1: he's a <laughs> he's a lovely man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess we're wrapped on that. Um, so, Michael, anything? Uh, you got anything going on that you wanna let people know about?
0: Um, I've got my blog going at the moment. I've made a couple of posts and I'll probably see about getting one done of um, Harrison Bergeron while it's still fresh in my brain. Um, that's mm-hmm. um at literary square eyes at blogspot.com. And I've got the Twitter account of book two TV show. Um, book numeral two TV show.
1: Nice. Nice. I'll
0: make sure to put put links to that. Yep.
1: And you know, I have I
0: have told you on
1: on past occasions. If you want to start up an Australia-based podcast like ours, I I totally support (laughs) that. (laughs) If you want to stick to the written, that's fine, too.
0: uh, Well, re-listening to some of the older episodes on the long drive, I'm happy to um, volunteer as the research department so I can get things done (laughs) overnight and they're ready for when you guys record. Ooh, I like it. I
1: like it. (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, our our former our our current research department, Colin, may thank you for that.
0: Well, I, I may owe Colin. I feel like I should. I don't know. Send some sort of chocolate of some description <laughs> to just say you know, the big card saying I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> no, no apologies needed. I I don't like stuff. It's it's kind of my thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I, I feel like really really bad. It's like you know. Um, I remember um, Seth was saying, looking for more uplifting science fiction. I'm like, going, (laughs) I've got to find something. I just feel, you know, (laughs) we can't do on the beach. It's too depressing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I've literally been looking, Colin, you'll be happy to know I've been literally looking for uplifting, more uplifting science fiction adaptions. Nice.
3: Well, the one that we're going to try for December might fit that category. Hard to tell.
1: Oh, do you do you do you want to uh, let people in on what we're going to be doing next, Colin?
3: Yes. So I found out that George Clooney, who has not made a movie for several years, is making an adaptation of the book "Good Morning Midnight" for Netflix, and it comes out right before Christmas.
1: And what's it uh, what's it actually called?
3: Good Morning Midnight.
1: No, the the movie.
3: Uh, I think it's called Midnight Sky.
1: Midnight Sky. Yes, that is correct. I knew it was something Sky. Cool. Okay. Well, we should probably wind up here because um, we're. We've been winding down. All right. Well, Michael, thank you for doing this. Thank you for suggesting several topics and being patient with us while we repeatedly did not do them um, during the coronavirus pandemic when our library system was a little less reliable.
0: So thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I've enjoyed all the suggestions that were not mine. Um, no, it's been <laughs> really interesting choices and I've been surprised every time. So yeah, no, thank you for doing that guys. And I know that lockdown has been hard for you guys over in the U S so yeah, appreciate it even more as everyone yeah. does. I assume. Well, it definitely is more fun when we get to, to
1: watch things together and re- and it's, Way more fun to record together.
3: Yes, it is. Right,
1: right. Yeah. So so we'll look forward to getting back to that. Cool. All right. Uh, I'll sign us off. How about that? Sure. So we'll leave you with the classic blessing. Uh, I was going to try and find something more average. but (laughs) I guess since I've done the classic one probably more than anything else, that would be the average one, right? All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time, may the road rise up to meet you. And may the book always fall open to where you left off. Okay. Bye, everybody. And I think 1961 for the story.
2: Was it 60 or 61?
1: First published in October 1961. Okay, cool. Then, then One copy of the copyright
2: mistakes in humanity. <laughs> <laughs> then the year on that bottom of that link that you sent us is wrong.
1: <laughs> oh really?
2: Yeah, it says 1960.
1: <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. oh, the actual where you read the story. Uh huh. Oh, I've got that right here.
2: I think it did anyway. No, it says
1: 1961. You know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Do I ever though? No. If you're confident enough, it sounds right. So. It's usually what I shoot for.
1: Okay. Uh, Anything anything last to say before we get started?
2: I rarely say this, but you're right.
1: (laughs) I have started recording, so
2: yes.